Colossians 3, verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we're able to gather together as a church family to worship you and to sit under the teaching of your word. We ask this morning that your word may dwell in us richly, especially as it is taught and as it admonishes us and exhorts us. For Father, we confess to you that oftentimes we have allowed other things, other ideas, than your word to dwell richly in us. So we ask that your spirit would take the word that is taught, that is preached, that is heard, and that we would be able to see how it applies in our lives so that as we apply it, we might be able to exalt you in our lives and that our neighbors may come to know our Savior. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. I heard it described that our life is like a house of rooms, that each element of our life occupies one of those rooms. So for example, one of those rooms might be family. Another one of those rooms might be finances. Another one of those rooms might be friendships. Another room might be our temperament. And another room might be our work. That our lives, if like a house, has these different rooms, our lives also has different elements to it as well. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we sometimes believe that when we place our faith in Christ, that God begins to take up residence in one of those rooms. Maybe the room of spirituality, the room of faith. And then as we continue to grow in our faith, we allow the Holy Spirit access to each of those different rooms in our lives, whether it be our family, our friendships, our workplaces. But C.S. Lewis gives us another idea, that God is not just someone to be invited into your room to clean it up, but that God is more like a renovator, that he is the ultimate fixer-upper, that unlike or kind of similar to Chip and Joanne Gaines coming to the home, the Holy Spirit comes into your life with a hard hat and tool belt, not ready just to redecorate your house, but to tear down walls, to take out plumbing, and to really transform it. This last week, we talked about how the gospel transforms relationships within our families. We talked about how the gospel transforms the relationship between husband and wife, wife and husband, parent to child, child to parent. And this week we'll be talking about how does the gospel really transform the aspect of work. Now many of us work. And when we think about work, we think about those who get paid. 
We think about the engineer that goes into the office to be able to design some component for a machine, for an aircraft. We think about an engineer who maybe is able to design computer models to be able to explore the areas under the Earth's crust for new means of energy or resources. We may think of the doctor who goes into the office to examine patients, or maybe the lawyer that goes into his company office to be able to untangle or to make sense of difficult and hard to understand legal contracts. And we think of the teacher who goes into the classroom to teach her students so that they might be able to learn. After they do some amount of work, they'll receive a paycheck. And that's how we think of work. We think of work that is oftentimes paid. But there's also work that is unpaid. There is work where you do not receive a paycheck. I mean, think about how even as students, we tend to do a lot of work. We have to go to a lecture. We have to complete homework assignments. We have to take exams. That's also work. But it's unpaid. Or even think about the parent who's at home. The mother or the father who has to take care of a child to nurse it, to hold it, to put it down for nap time, to change it, to play with it, to talk with it. And even when the child is napping, the parent still has to take care of things around the house, to pay the bills, to balance the checkbook, to vacuum the floors, to clean the dishes, to put away the toys. That work is also unpaid. And so work is not just paid and unpaid, but it's those things that we do, the things that we use our time to help others. And we spend a lot of time at work. If you take out the hours needed for sleep and you calculate how many hours you actually spend at work, you almost spend 40% of your hours during the week in the workplace. You see your coworkers more than you see your family. You speak with your coworkers more than you speak with your friends. You spend so many of your waking hours at work. And so as believers, we really have to ask the question, if the gospel is able to transform not only our spiritual life and our family life, then how does the gospel then transform our work life? How does the gospel affect the way that we work? How does it transform it? How does it change it? How does the gospel affect the way that we work? Uh, to answer that question, we'll be in the text that was just read for us by Yvette in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. And so if you haven't had your Bibles opened or if you're not there yet, please turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Now this passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 is rather awkward. It's rather challenging because Paul talks about the institution of slavery, that he addresses slaves. Now, it's awkward, not only for us, but it was also awkward for them in the first century, and specifically at this church. If you remember Tychicus, the person who bore this Colossian letter to the church at Colossae, imagine him coming into Sunday service to the church at Philemon's house saying, I have a letter from Paul. And the Colossian believers are excited because they've always heard about the Apostle Paul, but they never actually thought that he would write to them. After all, he didn't plant our church. Why would he even write to us? 
So then Tychicus unfurls this letter, unfurls this scroll. And before he begins to read, he looks at the door and gestures. Someone peeps in. Everybody looks. But then the person at the door is hesitant to come in. And then Tychicus says, get in here, now. And lo and behold, who is it? Onesimus, the runaway slave. It was Philemon's slave, the person who used to serve the bread at the mealtimes, the person who had always opened the door, the person who took care of the house. He ran away, but he's back. And so Onesimus hesitantly takes a seat amongst this Colossian congregation before this letter is read. And in this congregation, there is his master sitting right there. And this is his house. Master and slave, listening to this letter. Awkward. Tension. Conflict. It was an awkward situation for them. And it's also an awkward situation for us, especially since slavery is also a moral failure, especially in American history. But I do want to say that slavery in the first century, specifically during this time, was also different as well. First, Paul, along with the other apostles, addresses slavery, but they don't condone it. In fact, the passage here in Colossians chapter 3, as well as passages in 1 Corinthians and also Philemon, serve as the basis by which Christians, believers, work to abolish slavery. And second, Paul addresses this as a socioeconomic reality, that in the Roman Empire, almost a third of its population were slaves. And thirdly, slaves became slaves by different reasons. Some people were captured during wartime. They were captives, and they became slaves. Some, because they were in such great debt, sold themselves into slavery so that they could work it off. This is something called indentured servitude, or indentured servants. And there are various ways by which people became slaves. But most people, most slaves in the Roman Empire, after a while were able to purchase their freedom so that they would be able to become free. So slavery in the first century is much different than the slavery we know in American history. But slavery wasn't easy. It was difficult. They were considered property. That slaves worked some of the difficult jobs in the empire, Mining, for example. But a lot of slaves were also ones who worked in households, such as Onesimus in the household of Philemon. And even here, we see this word bondservant. It's as though the translators for the ESV, especially in the 2011 edition, were trying to specify that the slaves that were in view here weren't so much slaves, they were slaves who mostly sold themselves into slavery so that they could work off their debt. And that's why the word that we have here is bond servant. So even though we may not be slaves, a lot of us have some kind of experience, a little bit of experience, with what indentured servitude is like. I mean, 
Companies will pay for certification exams, and then once you take the exam, they expect you to work three more years. Companies will pay for your graduate degree, but they expect you to work for five years for them before you look for another job. I know some lawyer friends who work really long hours at their firms in order to become partners. Or I know that some of my medical brothers and sisters uh, oftentimes describe their time in residency as slave labor as well, working long hours for very little pay. Now, I have no experience, but that's what I hear, right? And so a lot of times, even though we may not be slaves, we have some similar experiences to this idea of indentured servitude. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do these principles that Paul gives to us apply in our workplaces? So there are two questions I want to ask this morning of our text. First, what are the two things we work for? What are the two things that we work for? And the other question is, what do we work under? What are two things we work for, and what do we work under? So first... What is one of the things that we work for? What is one of the things that we work for? Believers work for the king's pleasure. Believers work for the king's delight. That we as Christians work to please our God in heaven. That our desire is to please him as we do our work. That believers work for the king's pleasure. Now, Paul teaches the Colossians to please God and not man. Specifically, he first tells them that the Colossian church, especially the slaves within it, should avoid working for man. We see this in verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So I want to focus first on these two phrases. First, not by the way of eye service and people pleasers. So what does it mean that we are to obey in everything our earthly masters, not by the way of eye service? It means that we do our work whether or not our bosses are watching us. That whether or not our supervisors are there, we are doing our work that we are carefully doing the assignments that are before us. And then what does it mean not as people pleasers? What does it mean not to be a people pleaser at work? That means we do not work to curry favor with our bosses. That no matter what happens, we continue to do our work. Because many of us who are in the workplace have had experiences with coworkers that once our boss is out of town or out of office, their productivity drops by 50%. And when you call them, they seem to have disappeared, especially when you need something from them, right? That when the boss is out of town, everyone seems to be out to play. And then when the boss returns, the productivity increases a hundredfold. Or when the boss is at the meeting, everybody serves him coffee, brings him donuts, says flattering and wonderful things about their supervisors because he's the greatest, right? That's what it means to curry favor, and we're not supposed to do that. Now, it reminds me of a coworker I had. 
Now, when I worked in the aerospace industry, we had to get into the office by 6.30. And we were expected to begin work at 6.30. Check your email, work on your projects. You were supposed to start work 6.30 in the morning. If you wanted to eat breakfast, you had to get in earlier at 6 o'clock, maybe 5.15. Now, all of us on the team knew that, but I had one coworker who seems to have forgotten it. He would come in at 6.30, put down his bag, set out his bowl, pour out his cereal, pour out his milk, cut his banana, top it, and he would eat his breakfast. Now, the reason why he ate his breakfast is because my boss was a 15-minute walk away from our work area. He never expected that our boss would walk in on him eating his morning chow. Now, there was one morning where he was about to put another spoonful of cereal into his mouth, and my boss rounds the corner, and I see my coworker's eyes just grow as saucers. And then my boss asks him, am I interrupting something? And our team had a hard time holding back our laughter. Now, it's not to say you can't eat during work, because I know at some workplaces you can eat. But the question is, when the boss is there, when he comes unexpectedly, what will he find you doing? Will he find you having your morning breakfast and your morning routine? Will he find you shopping for Cyber Monday sales? What will he find you doing if he is there? What will your boss find you doing? Now, I want to tell you that oftentimes when we are people-pleasing in our workplaces, we begin to experience a great sense of anxiety. We begin to worry, especially as we think about, what will other people think of me? Especially if we continue to think, when will my boss come into the office? Because then you're going to be really familiar with the minimize function on your computer. So you can minimize any window, so that when he rounds that corner, minimize. And there's anxiety. You want to make sure that you are working when he comes, and you're always alert, trying to figure out, is he going to come today? Is he going to come in this hour? It causes stress. Now, when you're trying to not only please your boss, but you're trying to please your coworkers to be able to seem competent, to be able to seem that I know what I'm doing in my workplace, so that any time they ask you for a favor, you'll say, yes, I'll do it. And you take on more projects than you can actually do. And so when then deadlines start to pile up, your stress levels start to pile up as well. Now, there's also, when we try to please people in the workplace, there's another instance where we also feel anxiety. It's when somebody on the other line from another department says, we need to get this component out and ship to our customer ASAP, as soon as possible, as soon as possible as yesterday. We need to get it out now. But you know that in order for you to send this part out, you actually need to get the quality engineering department's signature. But they're still running tests. So what are you going to do? If you really feel this desire and need to please the other department, the other department heads, will you skip processes that are in place for the company's benefit and others in order to get that part out, even though it has not passed quality inspection. 
if you feel the need to please people, you will feel that tension. You will feel that anxiety. But Paul teaches that we're not supposed to be pleasing man, whether it be your boss or your fellow employees, that we're supposed to be pleasing God. And we see this especially when he talks about working with sincerity of heart. He says it in verse 22, and then he also says it in verse 23, work heartily. That we're supposed to work heartily for the Lord, and specifically for the Lord and not men. That to work heartily, to work with sincerity, is to work with singleness of mind, so that whether your boss comes or not, you are doing your work. And when we begin to work to please God, it frees us from the need to please others at work. It frees us from the need to do whatever our coworkers want of us, even though we may know it's wrong. And why is that? It's because when our boss is not there, we know that God is watching us, and that we're ultimately responsible to him in our work. That when our desire to feel competent, to feel like we know what we're doing, and to try and prove it to others, we recognize because of what Christ has done on the cross that we don't need other people's approval. That we are approved by God through Christ. And that we're able to say, no, we can't take on extra assignments. And when we feel the temptation to skip certain processes and certain rules that we know at work in order to get the job done faster because someone needs it, we're able to say, sorry, I can't help you. Because the Spirit of God gives you the wisdom to have integrity. And to know that even though somebody may reprimand you, your worth doesn't come from what someone says, but what God has already said about you. That when we work to please God and we truly understand the gospel, it frees us from the need to work to please others. And so something that we can apply or something that we can think about doing is to learn to begin to feel God's pleasure when you work. Now there's this old film about an Olympic runner, Eric Little, or Liddell. He makes this comment in the film because he's a runner, And that's what he does. He says this, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And God has made each one of you to do your work, whether it be at school or in the office or at home, that God has equipped you to be able to diagnose and treat illness, that God has given you the mind and the training to be able to read contracts and papers, to be able to help give good legal advice. That you have been given the wisdom to know mathematics and physics, to be able to design new products to help people. That God has given you these skills, these abilities, these experiences to do your work well, and to do your work to help others. And when you exercise your gifts and your skills to please God, to do your work, to help your neighbor, know that God is delighted with you. Now, not only do we have to work ultimately for God and not for man, because we work for God's pleasure, we work for the king's pleasure, but the second thing that we need to think about in terms of what we work for is this 
that believers work ultimately for the king's reward. We work on a compensation scale that is different from the world. We look not for the rewards of this world, but we look for the rewards that are to come. And so as believers, we work for the king's reward. Now, oftentimes, when we get into the workplace, we think about how much will we be able to be paid. Sometimes we think about what numbered salary will I receive? And oftentimes, if we get a five-figure salary and we desire to live a certain type of lifestyle, we desire more. We desire a six-figure salary, and thinking that a six-figure salary will be able to afford the lifestyle that we desire, to be able to go to that exotic place that we've never gone before, to be able to drive that car that we've only posted in our offices, to be able to have those fine meals in those Michelin star restaurants that you can't afford on your small paycheck. And there is a desire and thought that if I have that meal, if I have that vacation, if I have that car, then I will be completely satisfied. Until that new vehicle shows up in the office parking lot and you say, I got to get me one of those. Or as you see on Facebook, your friends post about this exotic trip to somewhere else and you're like, I need to go there. Or when they post on their Instagram photo this exotic meal that you know that you need to go try, there will always be something else. And that discontent drives our desire for higher compensation, higher pay, more benefits, more time off. And that is what we think work is supposed to give us and we need to have. But compensation can only do so much. It has its limits. You spend more time at the office, writing reports, filling out forms, doing more projects. But it can't buy back the time that you've lost with your family, the baseball game you miss, the concert that you're absent from, the time to see your son or your daughter walk across that graduation stage. It can't buy you the respect of your colleagues, because once there's another job, that colleague may leave. And it can't buy you more time on this earth, no matter how much you have in your savings account, or your 401k, or your Roth IRA. Because if you're terminally ill, yeah, you may be able to use some money to extend your life by certain medical treatments, but your time will come. And that 401k, that Roth IRA, all that inheritance you've been saving is going to go to someone else. And so Paul teaches the Colossians about a different system of compensation. That he teaches them a different way to think about how to be compensated and how to be paid. And we see this in verse 24. Verse 24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. What does this mean? Well, in the first century, slaves received no inheritance, zero, zippo, nothing. And so when they hear this verse read to them, they think, wow, we're actually going to be able to receive something, an inheritance? And it's true that those of us who are Christian, those of us who are believers, we have, in some sense, received an inheritance already. 
We have received the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. We received and are able to join a community of believers that we otherwise weren't able to join before. That we are already beginning to experience some parts of that inheritance. And we see that in verse 24. This idea of receive the inheritance as your reward. But also is this idea that the unfaithful worker will also receive judgment. We see this in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now remember Onesimus, who ran away from Philemon as he's sitting in this Colossian congregation? I'm sure as he's hearing these verses, he's thinking, oh no, what's going to happen to me? And Philemon, I'm sure as he's listening to these verses, he's, he's thinking, maybe as he hears verse 22 read, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, amen, preach it, brother. Maybe if he's a note taker, he'll be scribbling even more intently, maybe even capitalizing, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And thinking about this idea in verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there's no partiality, he may be thinking to himself, I wonder what I'm going to do once this sermon is over, especially since Onesimus is back. What kind of punishment am I going to be able to dole out? Now, you have to think about verse 25 very carefully because it means that we should expect to receive discipline if we fail to perform at our workplaces. That if we fail to do our work well, not only do we receive correction in our workplaces, but we will also receive correction in eternity. That if you fail to do your project according to your timeline, you should expect a call from your boss. If you fail to understand your material for your classes, then you should expect that it's going to be hard to get a good grade on the exam or that homework assignment. That is an earthly type of discipline. But we will also receive discipline in the future. Because in the future, as believers, we will stand before Christ as he is on his throne, and we will be evaluated according to our faithfulness in our deeds. That if we are faithful in our work, we will receive a reward. It could be in greater intimacy with the Lord. Or that reward might take the form of responsibility in his heavenly kingdom when he returns that you may have greater responsibility or lesser responsibility. But if you have not done your work well, you will receive a loss of reward, lesser intimacy with God, lesser responsibility in his kingdom. Now you're going to be thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't seem very fair. I thought once we placed our faith in Christ, that's it. Now, I never said that you're going to lose your salvation because once you're in the kingdom, you're not going to think about, oh, how come he has more responsibility than I? How come he experiences greater intimacy than I do? Because the thing is, the great thing is that you're with God, that you have relationship with him, that you're able to be in his presence. And all the things that you thought were so precious will no longer be precious anymore. Somebody has described the final judgment of Christ to kind of be like a graduation ceremony. 
Some people did really well, and some people just did barely enough. But everyone is graduating. Some people may receive magna cum laude, summa cum laude, but everyone's going to be receiving a degree. And that's what sometimes the final judgment may be like, and that's how it's described. And even if we think about it, even though there is a final judgment in the future, we have already received more in Christ than we can ever imagine. The forgiveness of our sins, freedom from the law, freedom from the dominion of sin, a relationship with God, that we're able to experience so many blessings from this inheritance that is to come. And so that should drive us, motivate us, compel us to be faithful in our work. So how can we remember to work for the king's reward? How can we remember to work for his compensation? I think something that we can do is to anticipate that reward, to anticipate the reward that we will receive from Christ at his return. And how do we do that? That when you receive your paycheck, or if you don't receive a physical paycheck, we get notification in your email that you have received your paycheck, think about the compensation, the reward of Christ, and how Christ will reward you on that day for good work. That when you receive your grades for exams or for homework assignments, that you anticipate the reward that Christ will give to you. Or even as parents, as you receive those notes from your children saying, best mom ever or best dad ever, for a job well done, that you anticipate the reward they will receive from Christ on that day. That we as believers, we're not on a compensation scale of this world, but we work ultimately for the king's reward. So the last question is this. What do we work under? What do we work under? Ultimately, we as believers work under the authority of our king. Believers work under the king's authority, that we work under his power. We work as ones who have been delegated authority and influence. Believers work under the king's authority. If you think about it, in our workplaces, we will never be the final authority. I mean, think about your company. You may have a supervisor, but your supervisor will have a manager. Then your manager will have directors, directors will have a board, and then the board will have its shareholders that it's ultimately responsible to. I mean, even if you think about school, I mean, as students, you have your teachers, uh, then teachers have to report to their department heads, then department heads have to report ultimately to principals, principals have to ultimately report to districts, and on and on and so on and forth, that all of us are under authority, and ultimately, we are under the authority of God. And so Paul teaches the Colossians here that God is the ultimate master. Uh, we see this in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Now, masters then do not have unlimited authority, even in the first century, that they could not do to their slaves whatever they wanted. Just as we as those who have been rewarded influence as managers and bosses, cannot do to our employees whatever we want. That we have to be able to treat them justly and fairly. So you can imagine the response of Philemon when he hears this verse read. 
He hears, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And they said, what? Could you read that one more time? Because the relationship now between slave and masters has been flipped. That's not just masters can do whatever they want to their slaves, that they are ultimately under the authority of God. Now, if you want to find out what happens to Philemon and also to Onesimus, then maybe take some time and read the letter of Philemon. That is also in the New Testament. But ultimately, we think about also how we're supposed to carry out this particular instruction. Now, I know many of you may be thinking, when I look at the org chart at work, I'm not really high on that org chart. When you see my name, there are no other names under it. I am that the lowest of the low of the totem poles. But the thing is, whatever work you do, whether that you are a boss or just a simple employee, you ultimately have influence. That the way that you do your work is able to influence those around you. That if you treat everyone justly and fairly, they will notice and they will ask why. And that even those of you who are students may be wondering, I have no authority. The teacher is in authority. She is the one who determines whether I pass or if I fail. But the thing is, do you help other students in your classes? Yes, I know that there are certain friends that you have that it's easy to study with and to be able to speak with and you have chemistry with. But if another classmate comes and asks you for help, do you dismiss them? Or do you treat them fairly and justly by helping them as well? That even though you may not be very high in that org chart, you have influence. And ultimately, you use that influence treating each person fairly and justly. Why? It's because ultimately we have a master who became a servant. We have a master, a king, who gave up his authority in heaven, the firstborn of all creation, who at the very words of his mouth spoke stars into creation, that he became a servant, being born in a manger, needing to be held, needing to be fed, needing to be changed. A child who could only cry out even though he spoke words that had power to get the attention of a parent, to hold him, to care for him. That Christ, our master, became a servant and to treat us in a way that no one else ever treated us. How could we, as his followers, do any less? So what do we do as believers? How does the gospel transform our work? That believers ultimately work for the king's pleasure. That believers work ultimately for the king's reward. And believers work ultimately under the authority of the king. That is under his power that we work. Now there's a story of a pastor who attended the funeral service of a man who worked on the Boeing 747. And the pastor, after doing the funeral service, goes up to his wife and says, you know, it's amazing that your husband had the opportunity to work on the Boeing 747. 
the aircraft that almost revolutionized air travel internationally. And the wife says to him, says to the pastor, you know, it's funny, because my husband worked almost 15 years just on a switch box the size of a loaf of bread. That's all he worked on. But when that Boeing 747 lifted off for the very first time, that was one of the proudest moments in his life. This particular individual worked for over a decade just on a small little piece of an aircraft. But without it, that aircraft would have never taken off. And God knows that small piece of work that you're doing and what a difference it makes, whether it be at school or at home or in your workplaces, so that when God's kingdom finally lifts off as you're faithful in the workplace, may we all hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you have called us into relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for how the gospel transforms our lives, not just our relationships at home, but even how we approach our work, whether it be as a student or as a professional or even as family member, as parent. And we pray that your Spirit, who dwells within us, will be able to take these truths that we heard today and to be able to apply it in our lives so that we might be able to hear one day those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.